Well, it's a pleasure to be with you today. I admitted to some of your leaders this morning that Cicero, Indiana is a, um, is a little bit of a jewel that I didn't know existed, even though I have lived in northern Indiana all of my life or most of my life. Um, my wife, Kristen, did the sprint triathlon that's held here a few years back, and we came down and saw the reservoir and uh, the surrounding areas and felt like we'd been transported from you know, from the, the cornfields and the flatlands of northern Indiana to a seaside uh, village and town. It was uh, really a, a sort of a surreal experience. We felt that way again coming, coming here this weekend, and we got to spend some time with the Gables and the Coulters last night just to visit and catch up from many years of, of friendship and not having seen each other for a little while, and uh, your community is really a special one. Uh, to, to be here nestled in the middle of of Indiana, but to have the, the sort of um, opportunities by the water here is really fantastic. So we're putting our house for sale uh, next week. We're moving to Cicero is the bottom line uh, there to, to join all of you. Really uh, have enjoyed our time here. So let's go ahead and, and begin. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not clicking, you're clicking, right? <laughs> awesome, thank you. Um, so let's imagine this morning um, imagine with me that you've known Bethany for a long time. Um, maybe you can imagine that Bethany is a person who grew up here at Cicero Christian Church, and you've known her since she was a child. And Bethany went off to college, as kids sometimes do, and she met the love of her life, Brad, and they were uh, married shortly thereafter. Now, uh, Bethany is a young married woman with a small family, and her kids are, are Haley, who's 12 years old, Micah is right behind her, and then recently a new baby was born named Emma. But something came up during uh, Bethany's recent pregnancy as they were keeping an eye on the baby um, and doing some of the tests that are, uh, are done for um, moms when they're expecting a child. And Emma, the baby, looked to be just fine, but something was found on one of Bethany's ovaries. They decided that since she was close to the end of her pregnancy with Emma, they'd let her deliver the baby and then they'd look a little bit more carefully and see what exactly was going on with Bethany. And that's when your phone rings. On the other end of the phone is Bethany's dad, Troy, and he's in a little bit of a panic and this is what he says. Bethany has stage three cancer. Please pray. We need a miracle. I'm going to invite you to actually participate. I know preachers ask a lot of questions they don't ever actually expect any answers to, right? We don't actually expect you to say anything back. This is going to be an exception. I'm going to ask a question in just a minute, and I would like a couple of you just to raise your hand and give me a response to, to how you felt when you heard this. So imagine for a moment that you've gotten this phone call from Troy saying, this is what's going on with Bethany. She has a serious form of cancer. Please pray. We need a miracle. We need her to be healed. Some of you don't have to imagine what this feels like. You've had this phone call, or it's been a person in your life, or it's been you yourself, and you've walked this road. So if you have or you haven't, think about how you feel or maybe actually how you felt when you heard similar news. And the actual question I want to have a few of you give a, a response to is to name as specifically as possible the emotion that you felt 
when you heard this news and this request that you pray for a miracle. Could a few of you either remembering back to a similar situation for you or imagining yourself in this situation? Go ahead. So that's a very, I think that's a great, I ask you to be specific about your emotion. That's a fantastic response, right? I felt devastated. What other feelings might you feel? Yeah, I care in the minute. Panic, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Grief for the family, absolutely. Any other responses emotionally that you have felt or might feel? Heart sick. We sort of feel, go ahead, sir. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. 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 That, that back and forth, right? You want them to stay, but you know at some point they're going to cross that threshold and and either be ready to go or it's going to be time. Yeah. So the, sort of a push-pull, right? Any other emotions or feelings that you have in response to this news? Fear. Absolutely. Afraid for what's going to happen to Bethany. Afraid for what's going to happen to her kids, her husband, her family. Hmm. Now we're getting even more honest, right? <laughs> Devastated angry, we're afraid. Who are you angry? I, I can't see who said that, but who are you angry with? Yeah. yeah. Why a young person, right? I mean, especially in this situation. Why anybody? But there's an extra sense of injustice when it's a child or a young person. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I would love to tell you that, and Andy said, you know, we've been in ministry a long time. As Sarah uh, Coulter said this morning, we're no longer telling how long we've been in ministry. We're just saying we've been in ministry a long time. For a while, it was novel to say we've been in ministry for 10 years, 15 years. Now we're not saying it anymore because the, the, the time is stretching on for how long we've been doing this. But I would love to tell you that now as a person who's written multiple books about how to talk with people in grief, and as Andy said, uh, le leading a team, responding to 12,000 patient deaths over the last decade, I would love to tell you that for my whole ministry, I treasured these opportunities to go to the hospital, to visit with people in their time of need, to be there for them in grief. But if I told you that, I would be lying <laughs> because that's not where I started out in ministry. Like a lot of uh, young people out of Bible college, I started in youth ministry and spent a lot of time with young people, uh, people that are my, uh, young people that are my kids' ages now. And I started on staff at Christ Church at Georgetown in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Christian Church, Church of Christ up there. And I was the youth pastor, and we had um, multiple pastoral staff. And so we each had a different day of the week that we took to visit people who were in the hospital. This is about 20 years ago. 
This was also before HIPAA, uh, what required a lot of privacy. So what we did was we had a big dry erase board out in the hallway where we wrote up everybody's names and their, their conditions and what was going on. There was several different headings for the different hospitals and Parkview Hospital that I serve now, of course, was one of those that was listed. And so when the secretary knew of somebody that was in the hospital, she'd just go out, write their first and last name, their room number, what was going on with them. I would love to tell you that I looked with eager anticipation to make sure that there was names on there that I could go and visit, but that, again, just wouldn't be true. So one day, my day was Wednesday, I'd done everything else I could to sort of put off that visit to the hospital as the youth pastor. After all, most of the people I worked with were the young people, very rarely were they the ones that were in the hospital. And so often I didn't really know the people very well that I was going to visit. But eventually I stepped out into the hall because it was Wednesday and I knew I was responsible for whoever was on the board. And I looked and under Parkview Hospital, there was just one name, the name Gladys. And then there was a dash, room number 317. And it said, broken hip. Now, as a young person myself who worked primarily with young people, I thought, well, that's sort of a stereotypical old person thing to happen, right? Fall down, old, old person falls down, breaks hip. It sounds like a story that, that I'm familiar with. But I also didn't understand what a broken hip really was. So I thought, well, I've broken my hand before, you know. I've seen people with broken legs and arms. And so this would be in a similar Category, so I eventually got into my, uh, my Buick LeSabre with the dented front fender, you know, that really nice youth minister car, and drove it down State Boulevard to Parkview Hospital. Um, and if I'm to be honest, I was thinking a little bit more about what kind of coffee I was going to get at the coffee cart on my way out than I was really about Gladys's need and what I was going to encounter there, because I, I'd done this before. I knew, I knew that sort of the ritual. You go in, you make nice conversation, you have prayer, somebody from the church has visited, you get a nice frappuccino on the way out, you head back to the office. You know, I knew I sort of had my, my standard of how I did this. But she said something to me um, when I was there as I went in and I sat down next to her bed. Because when I went in, I saw that Gladys was crying. I tried to make that small talk, that conversation with her. Hey, you know, Pastor Bob from the church asked me to come by because most of the older members knew Pastor Bob and they had no idea who I was. And she couldn't really engage. She couldn't really uh, speak to me or make conversation. All she did was cry. And so finally, I stepped back out into the hall and talked to the nurse. I said, what's going on with Gladys? I thought she just broke her hip. <laughs> and the nurse looked at me like I, I didn't get it because I didn't get it. I didn't understand what a painful experience that was for her. So I went back into the room and I did the only thing I knew how to do. I pulled up a chair next to her and I sat down and I got down at eye level to where I could see Gladys's face. And eventually I asked the question I always ask. I said, how can I pray for you? And this is what she said. She said, Sonny, just pray that I go be with Jesus. I thought you just have a broken hip. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what I prayed for Gladys that day, but I can guarantee you I did not pray that she would die. I didn't figure I could go back to the office afterwards and they say, how did your hospital visit go? Oh, it went great, great. She was crying a lot and I prayed that she'd die as soon as possible. I didn't figure that was probably the best route for me as the youth minister. But what I learned that day was that there's a point in time when these conversations change. 
and you can't have the same sort of small talk conversations that you've had before. So let's talk about phases of our spiritual life, um, things that we experience as we, we go through life. So this is the question I want you to think about this morning. Does your spiritual life today look like it did 20 years ago? Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about how your spiritual life, when I say your spiritual life, I mean your relationship with God, I mean the way that you view yourself, the way that you view the world around you, the way you view what's important in life. Has your spiritual life changed in the past 20 years? And I think most of us would say, absolutely, of course, our spiritual life has changed. Now, we could talk a lot about how, but I think if we were to talk a little bit about why, we'd have some common themes. Why has your spiritual outlook on the world changed over the past 20 years? For most of us, we would include some painful experiences, some things we went through, some valleys that we had to come out of on the other side that led to change. So let's talk a little bit about phase one. Phase one, uh, the theme here is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That sounds familiar. I stole it from VeggieTales, who stole it from Jesus, I believe. It's kind of the order of stealing there. Um, so this is where we start out, right? This is uh, the gospel that we tell to our children. This is what we, we would expect the, the kids down the hall are gonna be taught today, you know, that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives. This is conventional wisdom, conventional spiritual teaching, things that we stick with even when life gets difficult. We hang on to this message, right? Uh, that God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life. And I would say it is true. Now, as you can tell, because this is labeled phase one, we're gonna go on to phase two and phase three as we talk this morning. But when we get to phase two and phase three, it doesn't mean that phase one stops being true. God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life, remains to be true the whole way through. So the theme verse for phase one, of course, is Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and give you a hope and a future, to be a blessing to you. And this is the story that Bethany accepted in your congregation as a young person. She accepted that God had a plan for her life and that he loved her very much. But we, also, we don't stay in phase one only for very long. We move to phase two pretty quickly. So let's talk about phase two. So after the dawn of our spiritual lives, when we begin to understand God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives, um, eventually we start to encounter some difficulties and some problems. And now the theme becomes God is going to help us overcome those difficulties and struggles. So we know that we don't just live in this idyllic, God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life for very long. We move into a stage where we're having problems, right? Where things are happening and we're having to overcome obstacles. So I, I realized after about eight years of being in youth ministry that I wasn't actually very uh, fond of kids. So I had to make a transition at that point. Um, you know, I like my own, but other people's less so. Um, and so I had to make a transition at that point. But during the time that I was working with youth, um, we would talk about how they're going to encounter problems in life and they're going to need their faith to sustain them. And what I would say to those kids, now some kids have already encountered a world of problems. We know that, right? So some 15, 16, 17-year-olds have already gone through uh, more pain and, and heartache than they should have to. But others have been more sheltered and haven't gone through so many problems. And what I would say to them is, if you haven't encountered a lot of grief and problems in life, just keep breathing. Because if you just keep breathing for long enough, you will encounter major obstacles, major problems, 
and major difficulties in life. Conversely, if as a young person you don't keep breathing, (laughs) then it will be a real heartache for many people around you. So problems and obstacles are coming in the future. Now God helps us to overcome. So the the theme here, instead of God's plans and God's love, is God's help as we overcome these things. So the theme verse here, of course, is Romans 8, 28. We know that God works in all things for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose. Leading to verse 37, we are now more than conquerors through him who loved us. Phase two is what we talk about most of the time. Phase two is what we experience most of the time. Most of our songs are about phase two, about God carrying us through the difficult times. Most of our sermons, most of our prayers, most of our conversation. And this is what Bethany's dad and their family are clinging to right now. God's got to help us get through this, get to the other side so that we don't have to worry about Bethany being sick anymore. So phase one is all about plans. Phase two is all about God helping us to overcome. But then here's the problem. And this is why we're talking about this today. The problem is we know how to talk with people in phase one. In phase one, you think about uh, the new high school graduate or the new college graduate or somebody who's just started a new ministry, a new job. They've just set out on a new trajectory. Uh, A couple that's just gotten married and everything's before them. We know how to talk with them at the reception or at the graduation party or right after they got the job. Excitement, this is so great, isn't this exciting? Anticipation, what's gonna come? What, What are you going to be doing? We know how to talk with people in phase two as well. In phase two where you're in the struggle and you're going through difficult things in life, it's encouragement and prayer. You can do this. God's gonna be with you. We're gonna pray for you so that you can get through this. But once things have fallen apart, once um, a a marriage has ended, once a loved one has gotten sick, when you're at the hospital, when you're at the funeral or after the funeral, We lack language many times for how to talk with these people who we can't really talk about overcoming anymore, right? Because the person has already died. So you're not going to overcome that illness anymore after the death has already occurred. Well, if we're gonna talk about going through hard times, you know which biblical character we're gonna pick out, and that's Job. We're gonna talk a little bit about Job and his friends. And I know if you're like me and you grew up in church and you've heard a lot of sermons about Job and his friends, you've most of the time heard how lousy Job's friends are, how they don't have anything good to say to Job. They're not of any help. They just talk and talk and talk. Well, there's just a few verses before the many chapters where that's all true. There's just a few verses where they actually get things right, and I think we can learn quite a lot from them. So let's look at Job chapter 2, verse 11. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, by the way, if anybody's expecting a child or grandchild, good names to pick from here. Biblical, solid names. Uh, Little Zophar running through the church here, you know, in a year or two. Um, heard about all the troubles that had come upon Job, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with Job and comfort him. When they saw him from a long distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep out loud, tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering once. So what did Job's friends do? They were silent for seven days. 
Today, to be silent for seven seconds feels like a long time. So how in the world could these men sit in silence for seven days with Job? The scripture says it's because they saw how great his suffering was. All right, let's learn to care from these first few. We're going to ignore all the things they say later on in Job, and we're going to pay attention to these few verses here. So what else did Job's friends do, and how can we learn to care? First of all, they sat down. That may sound really obvious and really straightforward, but there was a University of Kansas nursing department study done several years ago about sitting down with people who were in difficult times. This is what they did. They followed a doctor around their hospital, and they would time, a researcher would time how long the physician was in with the patient. You know, I'm doing this like it's a stopwatch. I imagine if it was recent, it was more like this with the stopwatch on their phone. Uh, but we'll just pretend they had an actual physical stopwatch. He goes into the room, they, they measure how long he's in there, comes back out, and then they would go into the patient and say, if you had to estimate how long you think Dr. So-and-so is in here, what would you estimate? Five minutes, 10 minutes, 12 minutes? What they discovered was that sometimes a physician would go in and stand over the patient. You've been in this situation, probably some of you before. A doctor comes in, stands over you, says some things that you sort of understand about the condition and what's going on, what's going to come next, and then leaves. Other times, a doctor would come in, sit down, similar to what I, the only thing I need to do with Gladys, would sit down, slide the chair up, get eye to eye, and connect with the patient. And so you're probably ahead of me. You can guess what the study concluded. When they asked the patients after the doctor had been seated, they always thought the doctor was there for a little longer than he actually was. Whereas if he stood over them, they thought he was there for a little shorter than he actually was. And so I think it was probably Zophar who had read this PubMed uh, study from the University of the Kansas Nursing Department and said, you know what, based on this, I think we probably ought to go in and sit down with Job. But there's just something innate, right, that we know when we're in the presence of somebody who's going through great suffering, we've got to sit down with them. Second of all, they wept out loud. Now, I, like many of you, am from the Midwest, have a conservative upbringing and background, and I am, as you probably have already been able to identify, male. <laughs> Weeping out loud is something we tend to do what? We tend to apologize for. We know from the description of Job that he was a man of affluence. He had means, um, he had you know, a huge business, very lucrative, very established in his life, large family, things were going well for Job. Men of means and men of affluence typically have friends who are similar. So I imagine that these three friends that came were men who were accustomed to having um, control, having authority, having power, having resources, and yet these men, when they saw their friend, they let the tears flow. They sat down, they wept out loud. Next, they heard, they listened to what Job had to say. The interesting thing is it doesn't say that Job was silent for seven days. It says that these three men were silent for seven days. So I imagine that during those seven days, Job was pouring out the shock, the, what the things that we named earlier, the devastation, the anger, the fear, everything that he was experiencing. He may have been pouring those things out to these gentlemen and they held space and were silent and they heard what he had to say. Next, they sympathized. They put themselves in his shoes as much as they could, tried to imagine what he was going through and what he was experiencing. 
So this isn't simple, what I'm gonna recommend that you do, and if you don't remember anything else this morning, I hope that you remember the, ne the next three uh, points on this next slide. Job's friends give us a model for how we can care for the sick, the dying, and the grieving. And here's what they showed us how to do. Sit down, shut up, and cry. I hope and pray that some of you, when you've gone through your darkest times, when you've been in that phase three moment where you're not gonna overcome that thing anymore because it's, this has already occurred, that you've had somebody, maybe many somebodies, who was willing to come in, sit down, listen to what you have to say, and cry with you. Going back to my youth ministry days, we were at a Christ in Youth conference uh, many years ago. This was before the kids all had cell phones and we could keep in touch. And we got a, a, a landline phone call from somebody back home and, and a mutual friend of many of the kids who were at the church camp with us high schoolers, a mutual friend um, had tragically died in a car accident while we were away. We better believe that redirected the whole week of church camp, especially for those kids that knew this young man the best. And they spent a lot of time, you know, carrying each other's burdens, crying together, that sort of thing. And then one night we're in worship service and we're singing, singing worship together. And some of these teens had gathered together. They had their arms around each other. By the way, we can learn a lot from teenagers. I know I was kidding earlier about not liking teenagers very much, but we can actually learn a lot from how they process emotion and how they support one another because there's less uh, pretense for them many times. So they all have their arms around each other and they're crying together. And then it happened that, you know, me as the adult, mature, uh, stable youth minister standing behind them, I started to cry too, putting myself in their shoes. And what did they do? Of course, they opened up their circle, brought me in and put their arms around me as we all cried together. One young man later, he said, I learned more about Jesus from that day when you cried with us at CIY than I did from any of your Sunday school lessons. So I'm not sure if that was a compliment or not. I thought the Sunday school lessons were okay too, but apparently uh, not, not quite as meaningful as spending that time with them that day. So let's talk a little bit about phase three. What is phase three? Phase three begins to come upon us when we're not gonna overcome. We're not gonna get around this current difficulty. Uh, when your spouse, or your child, or your parent, or your sibling, or your friend has died, it's not, no longer about getting around it or getting past it. Now God will help you find meaning in the middle of your suffering. Let me hurry to say that when I say God will help you to find meaning in your suffering, I'm not suggesting that God will explain why you're suffering. What I am suggesting is that God will help you find moments of meaning and purpose in the middle of what you're going through. Only God knows why things happen and he seldom explains himself. Very few times that we really get to know the reason why, but we often can find meaning and purpose in the middle of the suffering. So now the theme isn't help or God's plans, it's finding meaning in the middle of what we're going through. So the theme verse for this is from Ecclesiastes. You won't be surprised in a message about death, dying, and grief to hear from Job and now from Ecclesiastes, where it says, he has made, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also said eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. 
I want to reread that verse, but before I do, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have been in a room where someone is either dying or as they died or shortly after they've died? You wouldn't mind? Wow, okay. I would say most of you, actually. Okay, thank you. And for those of you that haven't, just imagine being in that situation. And thinking about being there next to someone as they die, let's reread this verse. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. If you've been in that moment, you know that although it's traumatic, horrifying, scary, all these difficult words, there's also something very sacred about being in that moment with that person. And in that sense, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And he said eternity in our hearts where we can't get away from thinking about what's beyond this time-bound world and what we're experiencing every day. And I love how he finishes, he says, but really we have no idea. No one can fathom what God is doing from the beginning to the end. And so trying to make sense of it is usually not gonna work out. Let's return to our story about Bethany. Bethany's roller coaster continued like it does for most people with a cancer and diagnosis. She went through surgery, chemo, radiation, and then she was said to be in remission. But that's when your phone rings again. A second round of treatment has begun and the doctors are less optimistic that she's gonna go back into remission. This time, instead of just talking with Troy, you actually get a phone call from Bethany herself and she wonders if the two of you could meet and sit down and have a conversation. And you realize as you sit with her that that conversation has changed. You think of Bethany as phase one, you know, when she accepted Christ as a young person in your congregation, had her whole life laid out before. You can see in your mind Troy, who's in phase two, saying we need to pray, we need a miracle, we need to get through this to the other side. But Bethany is in phase three. As you sit over a cup of coffee across from her, she says something to you that you will never forget. She says, I know I'm going to die. I know my kids are going to lose their mom before any of them reach adulthood. I know Brad will be a widower before he reaches middle age. You swallow hard. And you could in this moment try to stay in phase two and say, no, you're gonna get through this, we're gonna pray, there's gonna be a miracle. But instead you just ask her a simple question. What do you want to do now? Now that you're sure this is the end, what's important to you? What would bring meaning to these last days that you have? She replies, she says, I like to write. I think that I should write letters. Can I give them to you and you can hold on to them until that time comes? You waded into phase three with Bethany. You loosened your grip on overcoming and getting better and you reached for meaning. Most of the time when people say, I know I'm going to die, 
they are right. And Bethany was right. Seven weeks after your cup of coffee with her, she dies at night at home being taken care of by hospice with Brad snuggled up next to her in the bed, weeping his tears and blessing his bride. Troy and Trish, her parents, out in the family room, keeping vigil, and the kids down the hall, asleep in their bedrooms. At home, you have a stack of envelopes, all written in the same handwriting from the same author, but written to a variety of recipients. You have one for Brad, and at the funeral service, you hand his letter to him with Bethany's handwriting with his name on the front. You hand a letter to Haley, who's a freshman now, and she embraces it and embraces you. You hand a letter to Micah, who's a middle school boy who just says cool and stuffs in his back pocket and walks away. Emma's will wait till later when she's older and can read it and understand it. You hand out all the letters and give them to everybody whose names are written on the front, but then there's one last letter left that Bethany asks you to hold on to until her funeral service and you to share with everyone else there. We have a volunteer this morning. I appreciate Sue, and I'm not sure where Sue is, but she's gonna read Bethany's letter um, at the end of the, the funeral service. Sue comes up and shares this message from Bethany. Friends, today is not what I hoped for when I was a child. Even when I was first diagnosed with cancer, I believed I would beat cancer and get past this. I meditated on the lessons of God's love and faithfulness that I learned as a child, and I prayed every day that I would be healthy again. For Brad, my kids, parents, and all of you, I know that you prayed that prayer too. Many of you visited, wrote notes, brought meals, and helped us the past few years. As time went on, the looks on the faces of my doctors told me everything I needed to know. I wasn't getting better. During that phase, when I looked into the faces of my children, I felt so despondent. I wasn't just sad, though. I was angry. In my mind, if God really cared, he would cure me. He would help me get better. God patiently tolerated my anger, and people close to us continued to pray and love us. I realized that even though God hadn't healed me, that he did still love me. He loved me through all of you. I thought I had felt the love of God before, but nothing compares to how much I felt his love on my darkest days. You were God's hands. While I would not wish cancer on anyone, there have been gifts along this journey. I treasure those gifts now. I told everyone close how much I love them. I experience grace and love every day. And after a special friend encouraged me, I began writing letters. Many of you have those letters today. Please know that every page is anointed with my tears and my love. I would change my story in a heartbeat so that Brad, Haley, Micah, and Emma wouldn't have to go on without me. But the closeness of God the last few years has been the most profound blessing of my life. Thank you. I love you all. Bethany.
what happened in that conversation with Bethany was you went beneath the surface, right? You could tell there was something more than just what she was saying, just what Troy was asking for in prayer. There was a deeper conversation that needed to happen. I'm going to be very honest with you. As someone who's worked in a hospital setting for the past decade, this is exceedingly rare. Most of the time, family and friends, understandably, only want to talk about getting better. What do the cards say when someone's sick? Get well soon. Sort of a command, right? This is the only possible positive outcome is for you to get well soon. When we know that for 100% of us, there'll be a point in which we won't get well soon. And yet, we try to stay on that surface, just that tip of the iceberg that's above the water, and we try to interact with that and talk about the person getting better instead of recognizing what's going on and all the questions about what does my life mean and how do I connect deeply with the people that I love, how do I connect with God when I'm going through these phase three times. So this is an opportunity. We may be very much in that phase too. We're going through struggles. And you know, for us right now, we've got kids that are figuring life out and we've got work issues and we've got a basement that flooded. And you know, we're, in, we're in those phase two situations where you've got problems every day and you're trying to get over them. Then you walk into a room where someone's in phase three and the question is, can you change the conversation with them to go beneath the surface, to recognize what's going on with them. So just to recap, phase one, God loves me, has a wonderful plan for my life. Again, doesn't stop being true, but is the theme of phase one. Phase two, God helps me when I face difficulties to get through those. And then phase three, God helps me to find meaning in suffering. So the question is, who can be Bildad? Who can be Zophar? Who can be Eliphaz? Can you go beneath the surface? Is there someone in your life that you're thinking right now, perhaps they have transitioned from phase two to phase three? A good way to tell is if they have someone very close to them who has died recently or it's still just a death that's hanging on for them, they are in phase three in one way or another. And so can I go beneath the surface? Can I sit down? Can I be quiet? Can I cry alongside of them? Jesus could. Didn't he do that with Mary and Martha as he came alongside of them and was with them and cried even knowing what he was gonna do next? So who can wade into phase three? It's not easy. It does take a stilling of the mind, a stilling of the heart to be able to be quiet and be with people in these moments. So thank you very much for today. And um, I'll put a website up here if you'd like to have a free PDF of the five worst things that people say to people in grief. Uh, we've made a list of those and sort of the reasons why. So you can go to my website or scan the QR code um, and be able to continue that conversation. Let's have a word of prayer together. God, we know that there are people in our midst, likely some in this room, who identify with phase three, who feel the feelings who um, have had to accept that maybe they're not gonna get through what they had hoped that they would get through. 
And now they're looking for meaning in the middle of everything that they're experiencing. Help us to be those friends who will go, who will meet together, make a plan, go sit down, be quiet, listen to how they're really doing, and sympathize with them. May we embrace our own helplessness at those times when we say, I don't feel like there's anything I can do to help, but listening can be something that makes a, a world of difference for them. Still our hearts, still our minds, so that we can be what we need to be as we go beneath the surface with those friends of ours who find themselves in phase three. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.